What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we got on Hallie Kaplan Allen of AngelList. AngelList is the OG platform for startups, angel investors, and job seekers looking to work in tech. Hallie's built a unique skill set as an operator, no-code wizard, and Twitter personality, and we wanted to have her on to pick her brain on a wide range of topics. In this talk, we discuss leveraging software and building scalable systems, why funds cannot afford to overlook internal operations, and creating a brand based on authenticity. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. I'm coming to you all live from Mexico, where I'm heading to New York because I just got robbed. And uh, I'm alive and I got money to get my stuff back, so I'm happy. And I'm even more happy because we have our good friend, Hallie from AngelList, who we've heard a lot of great things about. We actually have been on the phone with her for an hour before this. So she's doing operations there, has a really great background and actually building companies, which not many people from our podcast have. And uh, I guess, how about I just let her tell her tell you all a little bit about herself. You want to hop in here and give us a quick two-minute background? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the very kind intro. Happy to be here. My background is that I went to college in New Orleans at Tulane and fell in love with New Orleans as one does and didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do when I was graduating but knew that I wanted to stay there and do something that was helping to build the community there. I had an internship in uh, college actually working for a local incubator that introduced me to this really cool entrepreneurial ecosystem in New Orleans that I had no awareness of prior to that and I think a lot of people don't because Obviously, when you think of New Orleans, you think of very specific things, but that got me really excited about staying and doing something community adjacent. And I actually ended up after college going to work in the nonprofit world for a couple of years, doing a whole bunch of things across marketing events, fundraising. And while that was definitely a fulfilling experience in a lot of ways, I ultimately realized that the pace of work in nonprofits, and this certainly isn't the case across the board, but in my experience, the pace of work just wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to be in a more kind of dynamic situation. And that's what ultimately led me to tech. Kind of like I was saying, not a big tech scene in New Orleans. I think there are maybe two or three successful tech companies out of New Orleans, but I was lucky enough to find my way to one of them, a software company in the market research space and had a couple different roles there working in a sales customer experience role and basically realized while doing that that the company was doing what i think a lot of tech companies do which is they raised a bunch of money and they used it to hire a bunch of salespeople, customer facing people generally speaking but weren't really thinking a whole lot about internal infrastructure and strategic operations and process and 
I just started setting up a variety of like workflows and processes for myself that I think allowed me to do my job more efficiently, get more done with less time, and really enjoyed doing that to the extent that I ended up actually just going to build out a team around doing those things. So we called it our revenue operations team. It was a very small team, but most of the stuff that we were focused on was strategic process design, working very cross-functionally and bridging gaps between our various corporate teams. So like accounting, legal, product marketing, finance, and our sales organization, breaking down communication silos in a way that would allow us to grow revenue more effectively and efficiently. And I loved doing all of those things. I became very slightly technical while doing that, I like to say, in terms of getting into the no-code space and getting really excited about the stuff that I could do as a non-engineer, non-coder, and ultimately was like ready for the next challenge, as they said, partway through COVID and got excited about the potential to work for a non-New Orleans-based company while staying in New Orleans because of this whole remote work movement and ultimately ended up at Angelus, which was truly my first exposure to the VC world and has been a very effective crash course on venture because of like the pace at which things are happening and the volume um, of funds and syndicates that we manage. You really just see so much. I, I like to say it's like good way to get your reps in in the venture world. So I'm sure I have a lot more to learn, but I feel like I've gotten a really good crash course on the good and the bad of venture. Agreed, agreed. I think uh, Angelus is a phenomenal way. Like venture is a game of reps in a lot of ways. And then it's a game of just understanding who exists in what lanes. And Angelus is a perfect platform to get a bird's eye view of everything that's happening. And it's a, it's a even better way to just understand how this industry is going to change. I think that Angelus is probably one of the top 10 forces forcing people to, uh, to innovate. You yeah. want to uh, oh, go for it, go for it. I was just going to say my first day at Angelus was the day that they like publicly launched rolling funds, which was wild because I was like, I don't even really know what a fund is, but people are really excited about this thing that we're announcing. So I think it should probably be paying attention to it. So that was a fun experience. Most definitely. No, I think like that is a prime example of the way you all are innovating. Even like the way you all are deploying capital fire. I think taking the back office of VC, making it as simple as a few phone calls and filling out a few forms and getting people to come into it, which VCs are naturally good at networking and like owning all of that and then creating it for yourself. So that's dope. I think that's kind of a natural transition into talking a little bit more about you and VC operations. So like, I think we don't do this enough so we'll probably spend a lot of time on this topic how about like we open up the can of worms and give you some space to to provide context and why you became attracted to this part of the venture process and and how you decided to to really jump into it full force and what you've been learning yeah for sure so basically it's a good kind of extension of what i was talking about with my experience working at the startup that I worked at previously. When I was in that role, revenue operations was like this emerging discipline that a lot of people, it was like very buzzwordy and a lot of companies were starting to build out 
various strategic operations teams. It's called BizOps in a lot of contexts or sales operations, but just this like focus on strategic operations was becoming much more of a thing very quickly. There's a lot of data to support why it was a good investment. And because of that, there was, it felt like there was a lot of resources. Once again, like being in New Orleans outside of any significant tech hub, I wasn't really used to connecting with other people in the industry and kind of sharing tips and tricks. But this whole like revenue operations world gave me an opportunity to do that where we were in forums and doing webinars and even going to full conferences just focused on revenue operations, best practices, and sharing insight and advice with people in those types of roles. And that was really exciting and honestly just super helpful in building out how our revenue operations framework looked. And so when I started working at Angelus, and actually my position is pretty similar to the revenue operations position that I was in, in terms of my team's responsible for designing and managing a lot of the systems and processes that allow us to support the number of funds and syndicates that we do. And so when I started the role, I sought out a similar online community around sharing those best practices from a strategic ops perspective. And pretty pretty quickly found that there was nothing, which really surprised me for a couple of reasons. One, as I'm sure we all know, VCs love to talk about themselves and what they do on the internet, whether it's through Twitter or Substacks. Yep. And like, I say this self-deprecatingly because I tweet, I have a Substack and I'm currently talking on a podcast. So like, we all do it, but there's definitely like a, an element of preachiness in a lot of the way that VCs talk. Like, this is the best way to build your portfolio, or this is how you should think about thesis construction. And so I was really surprised that there was no one saying, this is the best way to think about your back office operations or your fund admin, or even just, there's so much, like any part of finance, there's so much data that exists around the venture investment process. And that can be either a huge burden or a huge competitive advantage, depending on how you approach it. And I was just really surprised by that. And thought it was had it in the back of my head didn't really know if I was like onto something or not because I was having a little bit of imposter syndrome being very new to the industry but I actually at, at this time was just getting into the whole Twitter world and came across a tweet that was basically another gentleman who was expressing very similar sentiments to me someone who had experience both on the operating side and the venture side. And was the tweet was, I'm just a boy standing in front of a venture firm trying to convince them to let me automate their processes or something like that. But basically connected with this guy and within, I think like 10 days, we had put out our first Substack article or whatever you want to call it. And the idea behind what we write about is process design, automation, and no-code tools, mostly in the context of venture. There's a lot of applications for those things outside of venture as well. And so we just write about what we think is interesting. But one of the things I found in starting this is it turns out that it's not that people aren't interested in these topics, and especially in the kind of emerging fund manager and, I don't know, just like a new class of people in VC that largely 
exists on Twitter. There's so much interest in this, these types of conversations. Not to say that no one, except for me, I guess, gets into venture to think about operations, but, but I think people are like coming around to the importance of this stuff, whether or not they've actually implemented it at their own firms or not. People have, it seems like people are very hungry for information and recommendations around how they can set up their operations and processes internally in a way that basically just gives them back more time to spend doing the things that they want to do, which is talking to founders, supporting their portfolio, fundraising, like these really like high value activities that you don't have, you're not left with a lot of time to do those things if you get bogged down with all the admin work that exists in the context of venture. And so I feel like I have this pretty unique perspective on that stuff having come from this world of strategic operations in a startup, but also now working at AngelList where we we don't have a choice but to do things strategically and to think about operations because of the volume. And it's just a really interesting perspective. And it's been really cool to see the reception to it. And I'm, it, I have days where I feel not so optimistic, but I largely feel really optimistic that people in the VC world are going to start to prioritize this more and more. And right now you see it through like the rise of the chief of staff role or even a little bit platform, like I think a lot of people in platform positions actually fill some of these gaps. And I don't know whether that's the right approach or not, but it does show this trend of a little bit more prioritization of strategic operations. Agreed. Yeah, I think I think people in venture, but I think it's like you're saying, it's the emerging managers, it's the folks who are at the best funds in the world. And believe me, there's probably only like 50 of them. And then the people who are just fully fed up with like how inefficient and stupid their existing funds are being run. Like I've seen funds that like are innovative and doing things right. And I've seen funds that like, to me, are like only a result of privilege, but not actual execution capability. And you give it like 10 years and you'll start to see these funds fizzle out pretty quickly. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's one of the things that I think sometimes I forget to emphasize is like the reason that I care about any of this. Obviously, I think it's interesting. Like I'm a, just a detail oriented like person and I've seen the impact that this type of stuff can have. But more importantly than that, we all know, at least on this call, and I assume your listeners know that venture is due for a change. Like it's an industry or a practice that is built on exclusion and things like pattern matching, which are really detrimental, both from a returns perspective and just like ethically speaking. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, there something needs to give and that's not going to be easy. And I think it's going to happen through a number of different channels, but the value that I feel like I can provide in helping the industry is making recommendations that specifically speak to these emerging managers, many of whom come from non-traditional backgrounds, whether that, you know, means demographically non-minorities or just don't have the same kind of pedigree that's traditionally looked for in venture. Like my value is talking to those people and saying, 
you can do more and have more of an impact in less time with less resources if you think about operations and process strategically and find ways that you can automate parts of your process. And that basically just means that these people who are already fighting such an uphill battle in the industry, like the battle can maybe be a little less hard for them because they're not going to be as bogged down with administrative and operational work. And so yep. that's like my one very small contribution to hopefully helping to change some of the dynamics that exist in the industry. You have no idea how much frustration I experienced in like some of my like time and venture, just trying to get people to understand the value of leverage. It was so frustrating. And I think that the truth is very similar to like the, uh, to like the real estate brokerage industry is if you're a fat cat and you don't have hunger to do that, or you're eating just fine without doing that, you'll never do it. So it actually has to be people who are in the minority groups or people who are at the like point where they're being innovated against. So they do it like, that's just the, that is, this is a legacy industry. And we're going to have the first adapter, second adapter, et cetera. And it kind of just is what it is. I think it's funny that, that some of the larger, more established firms like might not see that coming because that's literally the model of technology. Like it's like underdogs coming in and being scrappy and resourceful and having a chip on their shoulder and doing things in a way that totally disrupts incumbents. And that's what's going to happen in venture too. Hopefully, I think there's enough energy and kind of momentum behind uh, a lot of this new class of emerging fund managers where like they do have those things in their favor, even if they have a lot of things working against them. And I was saying this for two, but I don't know that in a couple years, there are going to be people lining up around the block. Like they're not going to be Stanford Business School grads lining up around the block to take analyst positions at VC firms because the pay doesn't make gonna, sense. It's they're going to find out that it's not, it. <laughs> it's not that exciting. And it's, yeah, it's not even necessarily that lucrative and like, it's absolutely not fulfilling. I, I know one of the questions you, you had for me was going to be like, what would you say to someone who says that they want to break into venture? And like, we talked about this a little bit before, I, I referenced a tweet that I saw about like, the break into venture industrial complex. But my like response to someone like that would be, what does that even mean? Like breaking into venture is <laughs> one thing. And also a lot, I think a lot of people say, I just really want to work with founders. Guess what? From my understanding as an analyst at a big VC firm, you're not working with founders. And also working with founders doesn't mean one thing. So that doesn't really mean anything. And if you really do want to work in venture, like I would just think more about what that actually means and what you want to yep. spend your day to day doing, because my guess is that you do not want to spend your day to day doing stuff that is in the job description of a VC analyst. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, there, there is some benefit to the job. I think that people should look at it as either a stepping stone to getting to their own fund or as a great alternative to get paid to get your MBA versus get your MBA assuming you can break in without it. Or a really good way to figure out what companies to join or start. That's like the, to yeah. me, the, the, the three lanes of value from venture. Like there's probably like three to four more for sure. Like it, it could elevate your social class. There's all these little random things, but yeah, it's not as dope as it seems. 
Yeah. And I would say, I would say like, once again, just think about if any, if for people who do say they want to break into venture, once again, think about what that means. And then if it does mean elevating your social costs, like one more power to you, like you do you, but then think really strategically about where you want to go work. That's going to allow you to do that. And it might be Andreessen and that's totally fine. And to be honest, if you get a role at Andreessen and that's on your resume, like you're probably set for life at least for now, but also consider, yeah, just consider what you want to be spending your day-to-day doing. And my guess is like a lot of these really smart people who do want to break into venture can provide more value to founders by doing different types of roles. And to be more like, I don't know, tactical about once again, speaking to people who want to pursue that path. One of the things that I think is really exciting in terms of breaking into venture is I think that, like I said, I think companies, firms are starting to come around to the importance of strategic operations or just operations in general. And I think that there's a little bit of inflection, an inflection point between that dynamic and then the rise of, and like popularity of means, sorry, popularity of no-code tools that has created an opportunity for people who want to work in venture and really provide value to be in roles that are whatever they're called right now chief of staff platform or just i don't know sometimes it's just called executive assistant which i have problems with but whatever but like for people who don't have the traditional finance or investment banking background like you can provide a huge amount of value you just spend a couple days learning like how to use these no-code tools and you're a go-getter you're an executor like you can just i don't know these kind of type roles you can provide so much value and to and to the portfolio by doing those things on that note and like in the in regards to andreessen and adding value and all these things and in automating it, advancing, et cetera. One thing that we wanted to dive into is a post you put out in regards to automating the Andreessen analyst. Can you talk? Oh, sorry, you cut out a bit. Oh man, I was saying one thing that we want to talk about is you quite literally put out a post that uh, like about automating the Andreessen analyst. I'm on top of it from where we've gone to this point, you want to talk a little bit about some of your thoughts there? Yeah, for sure. So that was like, I think it was my, the second post I wrote for Automatter, my Substack, And it was inspired by, so I had just done this job search that, that ended up with me at Angelus, but I did look at a couple more kind of traditional roles at larger VC firms. I actually have this funny memory of like, when I started this job search, this shows you how little I knew about venture. I just like Googled all, like all of the venture cap, like biggest venture capital firms. And I put them in a Google doc. And then I went to each of their websites to see if they had any open jobs listed on their websites, which obviously none of them did because VC firms don't post their jobs publicly, although that's starting to change. But, but so I'd spent a lot of time looking at analyst job descriptions, analyst and associate job descriptions. And it inspired this post where I basically just went through, obviously the title of the post is about Andrewson. That's just because it was an alliteration and it sounded good, but 
I went through analyst job postings for a bunch of different kind of legacy firms and basically described the way in which the role could be very easily automated. And it's a little bit satirical. Like, I don't actually believe that these large firms can completely get rid of the human touch involved in like being an analyst, but there's a lot of the process that can be done through process and tooling, especially if you apply it to the context of a smaller like micro fund, or if you're talking about like a solo GP, it's the job description is things like taking notes at meetings. That's not a thing anymore. Like there are really good tools. Even in Zoom, you can record and transcribe your meetings, but there, you know, there's some even better tools now too. And just things like, like document management, like there is a lot of both tools and just like intentional processes that firms can implement that gets rid of a lot of the work that's involved in being an analyst at one of these larger firms. And I don't think that Andreessen is ever going to get rid of their analysts and replace them with software. And actually I got some of the response I got on that post was from people in analyst roles at larger firms who say, as an analyst, I use a lot of these types of systems and processes to be able to get more done. So I think that's certainly a path too, but the, the point getting past the satire, the point is when I talk about these are recommendations positioned towards emerging fund managers or people who are under-resourced and can't just throw money at hiring a bunch of analysts to do admin work in a non-strategic way. There's so much leverage that can be pulled out of automating things or even just setting up processes in an intentional way. I always say like process design is like the ugly step sibling of automation. Like people love to talk about automation and it's really sexy, but there's a lot of value that you can get out of just like designing a process in a really intentional and thoughtful way. Agreed. Are there, are there any recs you have that maybe you can even pull from, you wrote that other piece on the emerging manager toolbox. Are there any recs you have for emerging managers? Yeah, that I would recommend people look at that and the emerging manager toolbox is due for an update, but I'm like a big, I'm a really big fan of Airtable. I don't think that it's the right fit for everyone because you have to have some desire to get a little bit in the weeds and hands-on, but, but if you have that and you want flexibility and customization, there's nothing better than Airtable for a deal flow CRM and just managing your network more broadly. One of the things that I really like about Airtable, you have the ability to design certain views and then share them with people. So like, for instance, if you want to create a list of whether it's like LPs or advisors in your network that are willing to provide support in different areas to your portfolio. Sure, you could spend the time kind of thinking through who should I introduce to this founder that would be, that would provide them some amount of leverage and value. Or you could just empower them um, by giving them a link to an Airtable that shows all of the you know, people in your network who have opted in to be advisors. 
and maybe what their specialties are. So maybe you have an LP who's really strong with hiring for startup. Like you could just give that information to your entire portfolio and they could obviously, once again, this is would have to be an opt-in thing, but they could almost make the introduction themselves or like you're acting as like a broker to these relationships in a way that's really low, like input from you like you're not having to put a lot of effort into each of these that's, introductions that's a bridge.app there's literally a startup that does yes if there anyone's is. looking for it there is and i looked at bridge a little bit and i think it's super cool and there's de- it's definitely a lot more it provides a lot more complexity and like tracking those introductions which i think is like undervalued and really interesting i will say you can basically recreate that in Airtable. But once again, it just depends what your appetite is. So like I've talked um, or written about how much I dislike affinity and there are a number of reasons for that. But I will completely admit if you don't want to get into the no-code world and set up an Airtable with these customizations, don't do it because I don't know, it's just easy to think like Airtable's so hot, everyone's talking about Airtable as a CRM. Like you have to understand that there's going to be some like work in setting it up in a way that works for you and if you don't want to do it go use affinity that's totally fine i will say it's going to cost you like five times more but maybe that's like a worthwhile investment and have more limited limitations on its features yeah once again i'm not a fan of it but i i am not like i'm not gonna prescribe Airtable for everyone because it's not for everyone one of the things i will prescribe for everyone is visible and and no one's paying me to say this even though i mention them in every one of my newsletters but for people who don't know visible vc is a lot of things primarily a portfolio management tool and it's actually like primarily built for founders to help them through the fundraising process but they also have an investor tool which is one of the reasons i like it so much is because it's an api first tool so it integrates with a variety of different tools, including Airtable, which Affinity just doesn't have that same level of flexibility, but is really important because going back to like, I mentioned this before, I think, but like the importance of data strategy, it can become an absolute nightmare if you're working in, once again, VC, an industry where there's a huge amount of data, but you don't have systems to pass that data between tools in an effective way it can just create a lot of like communication issues and information silos and so i find it to be so incredibly important that tools do integrate with each other and i'm just a a really big fan of the api first movement because of that yeah i i think that more and more people like we have a full like in, within the Confluence resource database, we have, of course, like the standard stuff, like all these templates for different analyses, contact databases, books, and all these other things. But my actual favorite one that I think is underused is the VC to, like uh, VC Tech Toolbox or the VC Tech Stack, where there's like dozens and dozens of these tools. And I think that it's clear to me that you take out five, like five years, people start to be like, here's my setup. Like YouTubers have like the, here's what's in my backpack. It's like these cameras. I think that we'll have a day where there's a clear VC tech stack that you put as part of your like Twitter profile or something like that. But 
Yeah, um, I think so too. I'm, I like, I did make the emerging manager toolbox and there's some like variety in it because I am careful about not being overly prescriptive. Once again, the no code tools are the right fit and really powerful for certain people, but some people want like a pre-built out solution. And so I think it's important to once again, going back to like how I got interested in this stuff in the first place and sorry for the barking dogs in the background, but why I got interested in this stuff in the first place is the desire to share tips and tricks with people and not have to reinvent the wheel. So yeah, I think having more, just like continuing the conversation around, yeah, what is your tech stack and what do you really love in a more kind of like concise way than just having to, I don't know, I've spent so much time searching, like using Twitter search to try and find like where people are having these conversations and I think if it's more centralized, that benefits everyone. True, true. Speaking of Twitter, last question before, because I know we've been on for a bit. Last question before we have Clay come in and say what's up and, and, and take us out with the, with the quick fire round is how do you think about brand? Effectively, like different investors create different brands. And like, how do you think about the, the drivers there and the strategies there of actually getting to having an authentic, long-lasting brand? Yeah, so I never used Twitter before, like, this past summer. And I used it, like, as a lurker, basically. And when I was starting to job search, I, and, and was looking a little bit in VC and a little bit in startups, I, like, read some stuff that was like, oh, yeah, you should, like, have a Twitter is this incredibly powerful tool to build connections and network and whatever else, and especially within BC, which is, like, pretty insular and relationship-based. So I, like, started following some people on Twitter and found that it was a really good kind of educational tool, but then was like, oh, I can't, if I'm trying to use it to network. I can't just be a lurker. Like people are going to come to my page and see that I've never tweeted before and I have 47 followers and they're like not going to ever respond to me. So I started just like tweeting some stuff that honestly probably wasn't really authentic to who I am because I had spent so much time reading the way that other people tweeted, but gradually started to network I don't like that word I don't think anyone does but started to connect with people a little bit more it was pretty gradual and actually starting Automatter was like a really good kind of catalyst and almost like excuse to be able to reach out to people in the industry and ask them questions about the work that they did and as I did that and as I started writing and especially with the piece that we talked about automating the recent analysts there is some snarkiness in that and I'm a very sarcastic person and I'm also just I, I truly do not have the ability to be a people pleaser, which is why the sales path didn't work out for me. I found that people really enjoyed my snarkiness. Like that piece, I think got us, I don't know, most of the subscribers we have on Substack and people just seemed like really excited about it. And actually one person, I forget who, but someone gave me like the best compliment ever about my Twitter, which is that she said like, a lot of women in the VC and tech world are very performative in their Twitter presence or just like online presence. And she told me that I wasn't performative, which I really appreciated. But basically, point being is I feel like pretty early into me starting to tweet, I got positive feedback for being authentic. 
and and for being my sarcastic self and I just leaned into that because like I said I don't it, if I had been told like oh no you need to polish your twitter presence or be more like this certain way or be less controversial like I probably just would have stopped using it and honestly I've my twitter use has waned a little bit because I do find it a bit exhausting but but like I said like I've I think a lot of people appreciate and are refreshed by me just saying what I think and being authentic and one of the things that I wasn't good at first and have been more intentional about is my life is like 30% like work and VC and tech like I do other things but I wasn't talking about that for a long time and I think most people don't like most people are like all my followers just follow me because I talk about venture and startups so that's all I'm going to talk about and I honestly find that to just be super exhausting no one is that one dimensional and if you are I'm not interested in hearing from you so like I said I've started to like try and talk more about other things it's funny like I have some people from like my non-work life who follow me on Twitter and they're just like I have no idea what you're ever talking about but I think you're good at what you do but yeah I think it's I think it's important to for people to show that they have more dimensions than just like how they think about work and I think that that can inform your work we're all real people in the world having real conversations and that should inform the companies that are getting funded and like what we're interested in. I think it's super important that people just show like more sides of themselves than just talking about venture and technology. Yeah, I, uh, I think we're more similar than, than most. I'm like, I, I quite literally just try not to have any filters and to be exactly who I am at any point in time. And I think that's like carried me farther than anything else in this venture space because there's a huge lack of authenticity, even though venture is the one place in finance where most people come from like different paths or gain their success from different industries and different types of innovations. And just it's the most network driven piece possible, which is based on relationships, which is based on like real people. And yeah. Twitter. I love that you talk about the performative aspect of it. It's just, bro, if you want, go ahead, use it to make yourself look smart all the time or always look- To my point, like I, like I was saying, I got positive feedback for being authentic and not, not being performative. And so I leaned into that. But like a lot of people have gotten really positive feedback for being performative and one dimensional. And so you can't really blame them for continuing to do those things. But I think we're- I think we're seeing a shift in the industry where there's a lot more value being put on authenticity and there's this whole like Gen Z VC movement, which like, I don't know, feels a little hyped, overhyped, but one of the things I will say about Gen Z, which I'm not one of, I'm very much a millennial, but is that they have no time for inauthentic conversation which i really appreciate so i think that i don't fault people who have subscribed to this more traditional way of existing on the internet but i'm optimistic that will go away agreed totally agreed i think it's, it's not that you shouldn't put out like hard content in regards to showing your intellectual capabilities but there should always be a balance and i think that's yeah, what yeah. most people lack you got two tweets. I was just pulling so, this up as we were talking that I think I retweeted. They were so funny. 
one. <laughs> you tweeting about fun mechanics at 6 p.m. on Friday, and I'm drunk off. There's another one just calling out. Like, there's literally not a single popular. There's not a single VC that was popular in high school. Prove me wrong. Hey, these things are so funny. It's like I was so just different talking than what's about like. That. I think that's my most liked tweet, and. I- Okay, this this shows you, like, one, reiterating that I have spent the past 10 years living in New Orleans, spending way too much time drinking, but, and yes, I was popular in high school, just to be clear, but I was just talking about that tweet, because I think it was my most, <laughs> and I got so annoyed, because I had to mute, I had to mute my own tweet, because people kept responding, like, tagging their friends, being like, oh, it was, like, popular, and it was just, like, all these people that I don't know and don't care to know and I was like this is so annoying like why are people like being so like mansplaining in my like responses and then I realized my tweet was literally prove me wrong and everyone was just trying to prove me wrong so I guess I asked for that I think them trying to defend themselves on Twitter is proving your point but (laughs) exactly yeah I think any person who was cool would be like eh she right it's probably like maybe 12 of us (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. I, I think to get to BC, the, the path actually, it's not built for people who are popular. No. And, like traditionally. They have, so. they have like fulfillment in other parts of their life. <laughs> totally agree. Bill Clay, you want to take us out? Yeah, let's do it. Hallie, I know we've been running long here. Um, I feel there's just so much we could cover, but we'll close this out. At the end of these, we just do these quick fire questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We're literally terrible at actually getting them answered in two sentences or less. I think we've maybe hit that once out of like 30 episodes, but trying to put those guide rails in place. All right, first one I've got, what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? I want to say go use Twitter, which is, it's hard for me to say that because I literally went from not knowing anyone in tech or venture, at least outside of New Orleans, to like having pretty, I don't know, like fulfilling relationships through Twitter. Like I've just started, I just, I'm now doing a terrible job of answering this in two sentences, but I'm on a road trip across the country and I've now just started to meet some of my Twitter friends in real life and it's so fun. But I think if you're told you have to use Twitter to get into this industry. Like it's really easy to become that kind of performative person. Do it if you want, but like, you don't, not everyone has to. Yeah. We've heard that same answer from a couple other people. It comes back to your like thoughts around authenticity. If someone's telling you to do it, you're only doing it because of that. Like obviously not going to be authentic. So I agree. I I spend way too much time on Twitter myself. Probably playing off it a bit. That's the other thing. That's the other thing is like, it becomes really easy to just become inundated with other people's beliefs. And like, isn't VC about being contrarian? Like, it's one of the things that I've tried to do in the past year is listen to fewer podcasts and consume few, like less content, because I find that we live in an information overload. And if I am consuming so much content, my brain doesn't have room for my own beliefs. Yeah, a lot of it's just an echo chamber, like trying to escape it. (laughs) I'm trying to do a little bit of the same. All right, next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Okay, I love this one because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Boundaries around my time. One of the things that I found in my last job that ended up making me really unhappy was 
I thought that being the person who is always available, like AKI responding to Slack messages until 9 p.m. or later was like my entire identity and value proposition as an employee. And that's really toxic. And honestly, it sucks because it's encouraged in tech, but you should be able to work a nine to five and be a really badass, like valuable employee. And no one is going to draw those boundaries for you and you can't expect anyone to. So you need to just not respond to the Slack message at 9 p.m. Because if you do, then people will learn that you're available and continue to harass you outside of work hours. So draw your own boundaries. No one else will do it for you. Beautiful. Totally agree. Yeah, I think Clay is the, the best most available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm, I've gotten like, harder to reach like intentionally I'm happy just because I, don't know, I think like being the most available person is a pretty gradual value prop then eventually exactly. like you start saying yes too much it just eats away you like you can't actually create or do stuff with your day and like before you know it you just look back and your day's done and you're just shuffling papers rather than actually building shit so I don't know I've tried to be more deliberate about that I think it's good advice next one do you want to do this one, Tally, or do you want to skip over this one? Oh, best piece of advice? Oh, no, the saying no all the time? Yeah. Let's skip it. Okay. All right, next one, best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. I realize it now, like, we've already talked about this a little bit, but if you can yeah, convince well, that. Yeah, well, I'll reiterate or sum up what I, what kind of what I was saying before, which is think about what it actually means. If it, if you want to work with founders, there are probably better paths to do that than taking a junior or like analyst VC role. If you want the clout and the network, more power to you, do it. And I think a good way for people who really don't have the traditional background to get in is by mastering some of these operational skills and pitching themselves to emerging managers who are probably desperately in need of your help. Totally agree. Totally agree with all that. All right, last one for me. Who's a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? Um, just going to be really corny with this one, my mom. But the reason I say that, so my mom has, actually, I think she stole it from one of her friends, but she for my whole life has always said the bigger your mouth the smaller the world and i always thought it was so embarrassing because she's like the person who will make best friends with someone in the post office line like every single time and it's just <laughs> it was just absolutely mortifying to me as a child but now i've become my mother as we all do and i'm a total introvert total homebody but making connections between other people that i think will bring each other value is absolutely my favorite thing in the entire world in part because it means that I don't have to spend time with them I can just make the introduction and they are appreciative of me and it helps our relationship without me actually having to spend time with the person but it really I don't know it lights me up to introduce people who can be valuable to one another and you're only gonna make those connections if you have a big mouth and talk to the person in line at the post office that I'm gonna follow up after this ask for your mom's social information and try to get her to help promote this once we push it out oh my gosh my mom has given me so many talkings to about my twitter presence one because she thinks i say fuck too much <laughs> but also because i tweet about her sometimes and she hates that so i can't wait to send her this because 
she is gonna love that I gave her some a, a positive shout out. Let's go. Love that. I feel like my parents don't know that I have any social media presence. So that's probably better. Uh, Although she yeah. she did tell my siblings that I am a Twitter influencer, which I really appreciated. God, love that title. <laughs> you should just change that in your bio. <laughs> oh, good call. Maybe I will. Sweet. That's all for me. This has been really refreshing. Like, we're used to having, like, somewhat buttoned-up conversations. This is just, like, completely candid, just, like, letting it rip about, like, what life is actually like on the inside of VC. I am appreciative of both of you. Thank you guys both. And seriously, let's stay in touch and let me know if you are in L.A. Huge thanks again to Hallie for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Hallie, we've linked her social info in the description below. You can also find her contact info within the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at Tyler at GPV.com or myself at Clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.